Well, thank you, Ira. And good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you on this Memorial Day weekend. Hope you're all having a great weekend. We have much to be thankful for, don't we? And as we pray in this morning in our opening time, just the fact that we can gather here without fear of persecution. There's many who have died and gone before us to make this freedom possible. We don't want to take that for granted, even this morning, that we have the privilege to gather, read the Word of God, and sing loudly without worrying about someone coming in the back doors to persecute us. We are thankful for the freedoms that God in His kindness has given to us here. We continue our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. If you're new or visiting this morning, we're slowly working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and we come today to John chapter 6. We've made it to a new chapter now. We're coming to a very familiar story, a story that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, and that's the story of the feeding of the 5,000, a story that's probably very familiar to you, where Jesus takes five loaves and two fishes and miraculously multiplies it to where more than 5,000 men plus women and children, so probably a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people are able to eat and to be satisfied, and even where there's leftovers. Now, what we're seeing today is a miracle, and perhaps the better word than miracle is the word sign, because a sign points to something else. And if you remember back from the first miracle that we saw back in John chapter 2, that these signs, these miracles reveal God's glory. They reveal Jesus' glory. They show us that ultimately Jesus is God. They're pointing out that he is the Messiah. And there's many more signs and miracles than what John records, but John records some of them for us for a particular reason. And if you've been following along, you know what that reason is. So we've got John chapter 20, verse 31, put up on the screen here for you, because this is the theme verse of the Gospel of John. So we're going to get inspired by the kids a few weeks ago when they were able to share all of Romans 12 by memory. We're going to try to fill in the blanks this morning. I think our blanks are right today for us here on, on this one to see if we can get them right. So see if you can say it with me, John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Good job. There we go. We'll try next week with no words on the screen to help us out. <laughs> I think you've got it there. But that's why John wrote this book. He wrote it that we might believe. And so these signs, these miracles, even the feeding of the 5,000 are written to help us in God's grace believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And friends, I pray that was your experience this past week. Over the last seven days, no matter what happened, I pray that you experienced life in his name, that he experienced eternal life, receiving that radical transformation from above that we've talked about, receiving the experience of eternal life and God's grace in your life, whatever's happening in the world around us. Well, as John is trying to show us who Jesus is, he does that through many different ways, shapes, forms, and fashions through this gospel. One thing I mentioned back at the beginning of this study, back many months ago, is the one thing that John does is he shows us people who do not believe. And we're going to come to that again today. So he's going to highlight for us those who lack faith, who lack belief. Now, why does John do this? Well, it's not to be negative. It's not to shame people, but it's rather to help us understand the danger of our own heart apart from God's grace intervening in it. We've already seen back in chapter 2 when Jesus tells people, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. People thought he was talking about the physical temple, not his own body. We saw back in chapter 3 when he talks to Nicodemus, says you must be born again. The Nicodemus didn't understand what that was. Like how can you be born a second time? We saw in chapter 4 when he talks to the Samaritan woman about living water. She was looking for water so she would have to go back to the well, not what Jesus was offering at first. We saw even in chapter 4 where Jesus tells the disciples, I have food that you do not know about. And they all get all caught up on who brought him food? Where did he find the food? And they tell him this, he's talking about being satisfied and doing God's will. And so John is showing us these things over and over to show us what we are so prone to do and to call us to believe. 
And we come to another one of those examples in the text today in John chapter 6, where both the disciples and the crowd themselves lack faith. The disciples lack faith and the crowd lacks faith in this text again. And John's going to show us what our human hearts are so prone to do. Now, before we get to the text this morning, I'm going to go ahead and give you the, the, the cheat sheet ahead of time and tell you what the main point is. A lot of times I get, let us go through the text and tell you afterwards what it is. Today, I'm going to tell you what the main point is. They can be looking for it in the text. As we go through the feeding, or the feeding of the 5,000 today, I want you to see this. We lack faith if we doubt Jesus' power or if we use Jesus to fulfill our dreams. Because we're going to see this in the text today, that we lack faith if, first, we doubt Jesus' power. Or number two, the second one, if we try to use Jesus to fulfill our dreams. You'll see this with the disciples. They're going to be lacking faith here because they doubt that Jesus can fix the problem. But you'll see as well the crowd's lacking faith because they're going to try to use Jesus just to fulfill their dreams. So we're going to read John chapter 6. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and the words will be on the screen for you as well. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, and nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Would you pray with me? Father, once again, we are thankful for your word the Bible that you've given to us. Thank you for your kindness to us and not leaving us without revelation of who you are. God, I pray this day that you would open our minds to it. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired this text, working through the Apostle John's hands. And we pray now that the Holy Spirit might come and illumine the text to our lives. We might better understand who you are and what it really means to have faith to believe in you. And may it change our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. So again, I hope you already see that in the text, but we lack faith if we doubt Jesus's power or if we try to use Jesus to fulfill our dreams. There's many today who, like in the time here, who claim to follow Jesus. But what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Is there evidence of change? Is our lives different because of our following Jesus, because of our faith? As we think about this text today, I think of an old country dirt road. So go a little bit out of Montgomery, okay? Find the National Forest or find a country dirt road out in the county. If you've, if you've ever driven out of the county and found a country dirt road, on either side of the road is a ditch, right? They put the country road up and they put a ditch on either side of it so the water drains. Now, you want to stay on that road. If you get in the ditch, you get in a lot of trouble, right? Most of us don't have nice four-wheel drive cars to get us out of that ditch. So if you're in a ditch on either side, you're in trouble. And both ditches are equally dangerous. In today's text, there's a ditch on either side of it. If the, if the dirt road, if you can visualize that, is biblical faith, believing in Jesus, 
the ditch on either side is, in one sense, doubting Jesus' power over here. That's a lack of faith. Or the ditch on the other side of the road is using Jesus to fulfill our dreams. And either side is equally dangerous. Either side is really lacking in biblical faith. And so before we get into the text, we need to ask the question, what is faith? We've talked about it a good bit as we've worked through John, but what is faith? Faith is believing based on evidence. It's believing based on evidence, but then acting upon it. It's not just knowledge. It's so much more than that. It's a whole way of our life. We're believing based on very real evidence here, and then we're acting on it. Our lives are different. Belief changes us, friends. Belief creates something different in our lives. If you think back to chapter 3, we saw in chapter 3 that belief involved receiving a radical transformation from above. We've seen that belief involves experiencing eternal life. Now, if we believe, if we have faith, our lives should be different. My friends, if we doubt that Jesus really has power to move and to act, we really are not acting in biblical faith. Or if we try to use Jesus just to get our dreams fulfilled, neither are we acting in biblical faith at that point. So to see that, let's look at the setting of what's going on here to make sense of all this. Go back to chapter 6, verse 1. Let's look at the first four verses just to get the setting of what's happening here. Back in chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So it begins in chapter 6, telling us after this. After what? That's what we just looked at the last few weeks. Chapter 5, Jesus heals this lame man by the pool. The Jewish leaders are not happy about that. They're pretty upset. And so Jesus begins a discourse, a speech about who he really is, that he has authority to give life or to judge. And so out of the context of all that, after this, we now come to the feeding of 5,000. The problem is after this is an indefinite period of time in the Greek language. We don't know how long after this is. A lot of scholars think it would be up to six months have passed. So don't think when you see after this, it's like the next day. This is somewhere in probably the six months that follow what's just happened in chapter 5. And so all we know is in these months that follow, Jesus, in this period of time, this day, goes up on a mountain, literally high ground, somewhere on the east side, probably the Lake of Galilee here. It's an area that, again, we're not sure exactly where it is, but probably today would be the area around the Golan Heights would be our best guess on that. An area that would be pretty secluded and would probably give him a place of solitude. A lot of scholars think it's a place that you, when you see Jesus withdrawing to a solitary place, a lot of scholars think it's the very same place that this is happening right here. Again, we cannot know that for sure. But the reality for this particular day, there's no solitude for Jesus, is there? There's a pretty big crowd that's following here. And why are they following him? Well, verse 2 told us a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They were following him because of signs. Now, this should sound familiar. Way back in chapter 2, verse 23, we saw many had believed because of the signs Jesus was doing. If you remember back from that, we said that, that Jesus did not believe their believing. This is not a saving faith. This is people following him out of a curiosity. He's doing miracles, and what is this guy doing? We want to find out more. But it wasn't just a passing curiosity. These people were literally following. Again, when it says the large crowd was following him, that's continuous tense. That means they were following and kept on following him. These are people who have been following him for some time because he's a miracle worker. They're curious about what he's doing. And friends, this is not a small crowd here. We see a little bit down in the passage, there was 5,000 men. It's the way they counted at the time, which means that if you count the women and children likely there, you probably are talking about fifteen to 20,000 people present in this crowd. Well, that poses a slight problem. We know from the other Gospels, it's evening. It's dinner time. You've got a big group with you. It's dinner time, and there's no food. What do you do on this? Well, this is where we get to what's happening in the text, verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, 
Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, this would be a natural thing to ask Philip, and this Philip was from the nearby area, so if anyone knew where he could find food, Philip would. But that's not why Jesus asked him. Jesus is up to something much bigger here, and it says that Jesus asked him to test him in this. Jesus was testing him. What is Jesus testing here? He's specifically testing Philip's faith. Philip is one of the disciples. Philip has been walking with Jesus. He's seen miracle after miracle after miracle. Philip has been there. He's watched with his own eyes. Jesus raised lame people back to walking. He's seen Jesus do all these different miracles so far. He's heard Jesus' teaching of who Jesus claims to be. He's seen it all. He's been right there. But does he really believe? Has it changed him? And well, he fails the test, as does Andrew. They lack any evidence that their faith can lead them to believe that Jesus can handle this situation. They doubt here. Look at where this comes in in verse 7 with a doubt. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Well, how does Philip respond to Jesus? I love one author said it this way. When Jesus asked him the question, Philip's mental computer began to work like a little cash register. So Jesus says, we're going to find food for these people. And immediately he starts thinking through the cost of this. You know, how are we going to fix this problem? And he says, 200 denarii won't do it. 200 denarii was about eight months of wages. So take your salary for eight months. And he's saying, you know, even with that much money, it's only going to buy just a little bit for the people. And friends, the disciples were not exactly loaded. They didn't really have much money. They didn't have eight months' salary laying around. Even if they had that, it would only get a little. What's Philip doing? Philip is focusing on the impossibility of the problem. Philip is not focusing on Jesus. He's focusing on the impossibility of the problem. And he's missing that the one standing before him asking him this question is the one who spoke the world into being. The one standing before him asking him the question, where do we find food, is the one who turned water to wine. The one who's standing before him asking the question is the one who just with his words healed an official son. The one standing before him is just in the last few months, however many months it was, has just healed a lame man by the pool. And it's taught us that he is God and has authority to give life as he sees fit and to judge as he sees fit. The one who said all those things and all the things that's standing before him. And Philip doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the problem and lacks faith that Jesus can handle it. But he's not the only one who does that. Andrew does that as well. Look at verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves, and two fish. But what are they for so many? Here it says he found a boy. Literally, the word here means little boy. And what's this little boy have? He has five barley loaves. This is a flat bread cake, and it was a bread cake that only the poor ate. This is not like a nice, big, fluffy loaf of bread that you go pick up at Publix. This was something that the poor would eat, and the wealthier, even people at the time, would not even touch it because it was so insignificant to them, so inferior to them. So he has these five flat, not very tasty cakes, and he has two fish. Well, when you think about these two fish, don't think about the several pound bass that Ron caught yesterday when he was out fishing there. This is not what you need to get in your mind here. These little fish were little, almost like tiny little salted fish that were used as a relish to make the bread more palatable. So again, don't think of a big fish here. You think of two small fishes that were like relishes to make this very untasty poor man's bread somewhat palatable to eat. And that's what is being presented is to Jesus is the only food we can find. Again, in that, Andrew is focusing on the impossibility of the problem. Look at the end of verse 9. You see him do this, Tim. This phrase is so telling. He says, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? He focuses on the impossibility of the problem. Again, misses the one standing before him is the one who spoke the world into being. 
They both doubt Jesus' power. They both are lacking faith in this moment, and they're doubting Jesus' power to be able to fix this situation. Yet, in spite of their lack of faith here, Jesus is going to still do a sign and show them who he really is. And that takes us to the sign here. Look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And they'd eaten their fill. He told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, friends, notice what happens here. When Jesus is confronted with a problem, does he panic? Does he rush? Does he get stressed? Jesus is very calmly, orderly, have the people sit down. He just begins to proceed with what he's doing. You know, Wednesday nights we're working through the attributes of God. And one of the attributes we'll get to later somewhere is that God is God of order. God doesn't do anything in a panic. God doesn't never rushes. God is a God of order and all he does. And you see that even here in this situation. Jesus very orderly handles the situation. He does a miracle. And when he's done, there's more than when they began. Now, some people get really hung up on the symbolism here. They think, well, perhaps this is symbolism related to the Exodus and the manna and then what we'll see next week in the walking on the water and the sea. You see a lot of parallels with that. Other people get really hung up on the imagery here, the 12 baskets and what that represents. And I'm not saying that imagery is not there, but that's not the main point of the passage. John's told us why he wrote this text, and that's to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's put this in here to help us understand what God's glory looks like, to show us belief versus unbelief, to help us believe. He's told us why he's included these signs. So yes, there may be symbolism there, but that's not the main reason John put it in here. John put it in here to help us believe, to help us see in our own heart that if we, lack, that we too lack faith, that we doubt, if we doubt Jesus' promise and doubt Jesus' power like we saw the disciples do. Like I mentioned at the beginning, there's a, there's a ditch on the other side of the dirt road here. And that's the ditch of using, not having faith in a scene and using Jesus to fulfill our dreams. It's acknowledging Jesus' power, but wanting to use it for self. Look at verse 14 to see the other extreme here, the other side where faith is lacking. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. That doesn't sound too bad at first, does it? They see the sign, they go, wow, this is the prophet who's coming. They're looking back to Deuteronomy 18, the promise of the prophet who would come, and that person is, in fact, Jesus. The problem is they don't understand what that means. They're correctly citing he is the prophet to come in the world, but they don't understand what he means. In fact, when you look throughout the scriptures, most of the time people call Jesus a prophet, it's usually people who don't understand who Jesus is. It's not the title that's usually used of people who understand who he really is. And so that's very true of this group of 5,000 men is they don't really understand who Jesus is. They think he must be a prophet, but they don't get what that really means. And we see more of that in verse 15. It's a very telling verse. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Friends, these, this group here, if you think about this group that was present, these were Jewish nationalists. These were people who longed to be free from the Roman occupation over them. And so they've seen this miracle worker, and who better to lead them in overthrowing the Romans? If you're wanting a revolution, who better than to have a miracle worker in your midst, right? If this guy can make water turn to wine and can make people who can't walk get up, I mean, that's going to be great for your battle. Your, your warrior goes down, get up, and he's back up. I mean, they, think of what they're envisioning here in this, you know, stop, and the army should stop. Like, they're envisioning someone to lead them to conquer Rome here. And so when you think about these 5,000 men, these are not 5,000 men who are going to become pacifists and go put on monks' roads and go hide out in a monastery one day. These are 5,000 men who are a guerrilla force ready to go into action. And they're ready to conquer Rome here. They're just looking for a leader. 
And Jesus' miracle working abilities are exactly what they want in a leader. And when Jesus won't step up and be that leader for them, what do they try to do? Again, verse 15, they try to come and take him by force. Because Jesus won't do what they want him to do. They come try to seize him by force to make him their leader so they can go conquer Rome. Friends, don't miss this. These people were following Jesus. They had followed and been following him for some time now. They were excited about Jesus. But they were following and they were excited only because they were trying to use Jesus to further their own ends. They were lacking saving faith. They were not experiencing the grace upon grace that transforms people. They were not experiencing the radical transformation from above. They were not experiencing eternal life now. They had their agenda and they wanted Jesus to make it happen. And friends, like we've seen in several texts so far, we can be really excited about Jesus and be really lost all at the same time. And Jesus won't have anything to do with this. Look at the end of verse 15. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus will not allow people to use him for their purposes. Don't miss that one. Jesus will not allow people to use him for their own personal purposes here. So what do we see going on right here in this text? We see again that we lack faith if we doubt Jesus' power. This is one danger. But we also lack faith if we're simply trying to use Jesus to fulfill our dreams. Friends, it was true for them and it can be true for me and for you apart from God's grace as well. Friends, we too can doubt Jesus' power. Now, most of us are not going to articulate that. There's, I don't think I've ever had many, or I've had very few people ever come up to me and say, I just don't believe God can do that, quite that directly. But it comes out in a lot of other ways that that's where we are. I can't tell you how many guys have sat in my office over the years who's like, Grady, I have anger issues, but it's never going to change. I just can't get over it. They're doing the exact same thing the disciples did here. They're doubting Jesus' power to change them. The number of guys who sat in my office and said, Grady, I can't beat pornography. I can't beat lust. There's just no hope. It's got too much of a stronghold. It, it'll never change. They're doing the same thing that the disciples did right there, doubting Jesus' power on that. I've had people talk to me and say, Grady, I have no hope that my marriage will ever be what God wants it to be. My marriage has no hope to ever be reconciled. They're doing the same thing the disciples were doing here today. The people who will say, I have no hope of ever being reconciled to that person. We're too estranged. They've wounded me too bad. I've hurt them too bad. There's no hope of reconciliation. They're doing the same thing. The disciples did. Again, we're usually not going to say it so directly as saying, I don't believe Jesus has power, but our actions, our doubt of God actually changing us indicates that. One of my grave concerns for the American church today is that we see the gospel as only something for getting me into the kingdom, something so I don't go to hell. But friends, the reality is the gospel is that we need Jesus today. The reality is the gospel is just as much today for me beating anger, me beating lust, me beating pride, whatever it is, as it is for me coming into the kingdom as well. The gospel is for our everyday life as well. We need grace to repent. We need grace to overcome anger. We need grace to have our marriages that honor God. We need grace to be reconciled. We need it every day. That danger is just as real in our hearts today as it was for the disciples. But what about the other side of this? We also lack faith that we try to use Jesus to fulfill our dreams. Again, most of us are not bold enough to say that. Well, I only come to church because I want Jesus to do this. But that happens in hearts. How many people come to church, study the Bible, even give to the church, hoping that, well, if I just do these things, this illness will go away. If I just do these things, my kids will love me. And if I just do these things, this relationship will be restored. If I just do these things, God will fix my marriage. If I just go to church enough, God will take away that temptation that plagues me. Again, how often do we live out in such a way to where we're trying to use Jesus to fix our problems? Does God grow his children? Absolutely. Does God sanctify his children? Absolutely on that. But friends, we don't go to Jesus because we need him to do stuff for us. We go to Jesus because he's God. Because he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our surrender. He's worthy of us submitting ourselves to him. And so we come to Jesus submitting to him as Lord 
and then trusting him to change us as he sees fit. And as he sees fit, it's laid out for us in the authority of the word of God. We don't go to him hoping to fix these problems. We go to him because he is God. And so, friends, that begs the question for me and for you, why, are, why am I here today? Why are you here today? On a holiday weekend, what are we doing here? Are we here because we love Jesus? Are we here because our hearts long for him, because we long for his presence, because we are so captured by his greatness, believing that he is Lord, believing he is God, that we want to worship, we want to obey, we want to know him more, and we study the depths of scripture because we love him so much and want to know more of who he is. Is that why we're here? Or have we gone off in the ditch on either side of that dirt road? Are we off in the ditch if we're here full of doubts? We're here out of habit. We're here because a husband or a wife or a friend makes us come. Are we here for some reason that doubting that God will ever break through? I've done these sins. God can never love me. Or I don't really believe that God is real. Or whatever it is, are we stuck in that ditch of those doubts right there and just here for some other reason to please a person or out of habit? Or are we here in the ditch on the other side? Are we here because we're trying to get God to do something for us? That we're here not because we're going to worship Jesus, but we're here because we need him to fix something in my life today. Why are we here today? And friends, with that in view... It's appropriate for us to come to a time of communion, of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time of reflection for the children of God. It's a time for us to think about what it means to follow Jesus, to remember his sacrifice for us. Communion is a sacred time in the life of the church gathered. And friends, today, if you have faith in Jesus... If you've experienced eternal life, and even this week you're experiencing eternal life, if you receive that transformation from above, commune is a time of celebration for you. It's a time to remember that what you've experienced is not because of you, not because you're so great or I'm so great. It's because of God's grace at work in our lives. So we come to communion with hearts full of thankfulness, realizing that God looked on undeserving, wretched sinners like us, and his mercy chose not to condemn us, but to give us life. Give us life in Christ, not by looking over our sins, but rather by taking all of our sins and putting them at Christ on the cross as he bore the wrath of a holy God and took the wrath we deserve that he might impart life to us. Friends, if you are in Christ, you're welcome to come celebrate communion this morning at the Lord's table. But with that, communion is also a time of serious reflection for us. That's why when we begin communion, we don't just jump up and have them run up and get it right away. We play some music and give you a chance to take that and sit back in your seat and to think about it. It's a time of serious reflection as well. Friends, if we're on either ditch and we're not experiencing biblical faith in our life, if we're in the ditch of, of doubting God's power, we're in the ditch right now of trying to use Jesus to further our means, friends, I plead with you, don't take the, these elements until you've done business with the Lord. There's sobering warnings in Scripture about taking these elements in an unworthy manner. In fact, if we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I just want to read these to you. Just listen to this as we prepare this morning, prepare our hearts for celebrating this ordinance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes to the people in Corinth, for I see from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, friends, as we take the bread this morning, as we take the, the juice cups, we're reminded that our freedom in Christ, the fact that he's forgiven us, is not because of anything we've done. It's because Christ's body was broken on the cross. His blood was shed for our sins. We're told in Scripture, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it reminds us of those truths. So again, for all who believe that, you're welcome to come partake. But it carries on here in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For any, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Friends, there's a serious warning here for us of taking an unworthy manner. We need to make sure our hearts are right before the Lord, that we're focused on what it really means. That's the main point of that passage. It's also a call for us to make sure we don't have unconfessed sin in our life. Friends, what we just talked about this morning, if you're at a place right now to where there's doubt in your heart, I plead with you, before you take the elements, do business with God. You don't want to come take these elements with, that, with your heart full of doubt about who God is or doubt about what Jesus is doing. But likewise, if you're on the other side, if you've been using Jesus in some way or wanting to use Jesus to accomplish your ends, likewise, you don't need to take these until you've done business with God. Spend some time in your seat talking to the Lord. It's more important for you to be right with God than what your friends think. No one's going to look at you funny or shame you if you choose to stay in your seat instead of getting up when we come to receive the elements. It's more important to have your heart right with God than to worry about what the people around you think, okay? So with that in view, I want to pray for us, and then our deacons are going to come help us as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Father God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your love for us. God, that in your kindness, in your mercy, you looked upon wretched sinners like us. You would have been very just to condemn and damn each one of us. But God, in your infinite mercy and grace, you have instead bestowed life on us. You've given us life in Christ. You've just called us to repent and to believe. Call us to the gospel. God, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters here. For those who are in Christ, who have experienced eternal life, who have received that radical transformation from above, who are not just falling out of curiosity, but Lord, love you. I pray you would fill their hearts with hope this morning. Would you remind them of your great love for them, even as they come take the elements. As they take the bread and are reminded, Lord Jesus, of your body being broken. They drink the juice and are reminded that your blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Would you fill their hearts with joy in the gospel this morning? Lord, if there are those who are here who are struggling with doubt, who are struggling with having sought you or even being here to try to get stuff, God, I pray this morning that you would give a breakthrough in their hearts. If there's any who are here who have never trusted you as Lord and Savior, would this morning be the morning that you would break them? If it's their pride that's holding them back or whatever it is, would you break through this morning and let them see the glory of King Jesus? Let them see the beauty of you, O Lord. And may they repent and believe. God, for all of us, I pray that this time of communion it will be a time of worship for us. Got a time of thanksgiving for us for all that you have done. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask our praise team to come first to, to receive the elements. And then after they come receive them, the, our, our deacons will direct you from your seats to come receive.